So here we go. So we're in this ambassador series, and, and, the, um, and, and, and the definition we've been working with is an ambassador is an accredited diplomat sent by a country as its official representative to a foreign country. This person represents and promotes their country. So this is an individual that is representing. So an ambassador is someone who's representing a king. So we represent a king and his kingdom. So it's not my kingdom. It is my king, not my kingdom, right? Okay, so as an ambassador, he has accredited us. And last week we talked about what that accredited means. It means this, he gave me his Holy Spirit. So I'm accredited with his Holy Spirit. That makes me an official representative of his kingdom. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you are a representative of the king because you bear his mark, the Holy Spirit. Amen? Right? Okay? So, so here's the thing is that that's what I'm wanting us to understand with this series is that every one of us, we are called to be an ambassador. Every one of us is called to be an ambassador. And here's one of those verses that I want us to, to hold close to our heart. Our citizenship is in heaven. Right? We get so caught up in being an American. And I, I'm, I'm not telling you, I served in the military. Uh, and we have a lot of people here who have served in the military. And here's the deal. I love that I'm a part of a free country that gets to talk about Jesus without having to be underground. But here's the deal. You ask me, first and foremost, I am a believer of Jesus Christ. I am a part of His kingdom and I want to do His kingdom work. So, I'm a citizen of heaven. So today's message is this, an ambassador is compelled to be a witness. And that's why we also did our missions fair right here. I really want to encourage you guys, there are so many different ways to do missions. That's what's so beautiful. It's not just a door-to-door or just going out of state. But there are so many different ways, so many different ways to be involved in planting seeds in people's lives. We, and, and so I'm so proud of our, our go-and-tell ministry team and what they're doing. And so, so here's the thing is that as an ambassador, I am called to witness. I'm called to be a witness. So, all right. So we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians. I want to say Chronicles. Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. So an ambassador is compelled to be a witness. The word compel means this. To compel someone is to drive or irresistibly urge them. So I, I love this word because I got this off of, of, of uh, uh, Google dic- uh, dictionaries. But I, I love this. To irresistibly urge you. So to be compelled, if I am compelled by God, it means that he has irresistibly urged me to do something. Isn't that pretty amazing to think about that? Is that and my question to follow up with this, is, is God irresistible to you? Has, has He became so powerful in your life and so close to your life that God, He is irresistible. Whatever He wants, I want to do. So God is just, I, I can't resist Him. See, that's what irresistible means. I can't resist Jesus. So if Jesus says, hey, I want you to share your faith with the person sitting next to you, is He irresistible? God, I can't resist you, so I'm gonna. I remember when I was in college, um, I was studying to be a pastor, and I was very bold. Um, I'm still pretty bold, um, but um, I was really bold, and I remember driving to a gas station, and I was getting, getting gas, and I saw a lady walking in, and God told me to go share my faith with her. And I'm like, I don't know who she is. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, huh. I'm just going to pump my gas. And God kept urging me and urging me that I needed to go tell her that he loved her. I'm sure she knows this, Lord. And I didn't. 
I didn't. I chickened out. I chickened out. And I remember feeling so guilty about it. And I've still never, in all of uh, 23 years of ministry, I've never forgotten that I resisted God when he told me to go share his love with somebody. And I'm sure that all of us have probably been urged by God somewhere along the way, right? And we didn't do it. We were scared. I was scared. I didn't, I didn't know her. I didn't know what to say. I thought, man, this is going to be really weird when I just walk. Hey, I just want you to know Jesus loves you. And now it sounds like, well, yeah, that sounds pretty, pretty much normal. Why wouldn't I say something like that? Why was I so scared to say Jesus loves you? Is there something I can pray about? But I, for whatever reason, I chickened out and I never forgot it. That I, when, when God lays something like that on my heart and I don't do it, I resisted him. I think sometimes we forget that it's a big deal to share our faith. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. And then when I, the moment I say, God, no. When I say no, I'm, resi- I'm saying no to God. I'm being unfaithful. See, there's not just the sin of commission, meaning I'm doing something wrong. But there's also the sin of omission when I say no when God tells me to do something. And this is one of those areas. So let me show you some just verses in the Bible here real fast. Uh, Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. See, this isn't a suggestion, is it? He says when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be a witness. It's going to happen. So if I'm not a witness, I'm wondering, what's the... Am I resisting the Holy Spirit? Am I pushing the Holy Spirit away? What? There's something wrong because if I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to take over, I am a witness. It's going to be a natural byproduct. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I love it. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were always getting in trouble because they wouldn't stop talking about Jesus and a lot of people wanted them to stop. And it says, uh, then they called him. Them, and, and again, so the Sanhedrin who killed Jesus called them in and said, uh, we, we command you not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I can't help but to talk about what Jesus has done in my life. I can't help but to share my faith. I can't help but to talk about the amazing things that I'm seeing God do. I wish, we had, I wish every Christian was like that. I can't help. I can't help it, Lord. I can't stop talking about you. You remember maybe a time in your life where you just started dating someone and, and you just thought that they were the greatest thing since sliced bread? Oh, come on. Come on. (laughs) And so we can't stop talking about them. We can't stop talking about what's going to happen next. What I want to challenge you to, though, what I want to challenge you is this. What happened to that love and passion for Jesus what happened to that time in your life when you couldn't stop talking about what Jesus was doing? You see, we get so complacent in our lives and somewhere along the way, we stop sharing our love for Jesus. I remember when I first started dating my wife. Well, she wasn't my wife then. We still date now, though. Um, best part of marriage is getting to continue to date. Um, 
But I remember when, when, when I went into this, the, the dorm um, and I walked into the, 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 the lobby area where all the hangout place was anyways, and there's this little blonde girl and she said, hey, Danny. Well, no one at college at SBU knew my name by Danny. No one knew that I had a first name. Everyone called me Yoder because it's such a rare name in a Baptist <laughs> university. I mean, like, Mennonite would have been like, just another Yoder, you know. But as in a Baptist one, they're like, Yoder? That's really cool. So everybody, my teachers, my professor, all Mr. Yoder, Mr. Yoder, everybody called. So then she says, Danny. And the only people who've ever called me Danny is like my grandparents and, and my wife of now. Um, but anyway, she said, Danny. And all of us, I knew she was talking to me. Well, I sure hope so. I look over there and here's this little blonde thing. I'm like, I'll be your huckleberry. Call me whatever you want, just not late for dinner, you know. So, but I remember, and we would talk on the phone till 3 o'clock in the morning. I couldn't stop thinking about her, right? But I, I'm using that as an analogy because a lot of us have, have experienced that. One of my daughters is experiencing that. <sighs> okay, and so, but here's the thing is that I'm wanting us to, I'm asking this question is this. Did something happen to our love for Jesus that he is now just a, a piece of that conversation? What happened when you first got saved and he first touched your life and you talked about wanting to be in the room? It's great to sing a fun, catchy song, but what when it really means something? God, I just want to be in the room. When you're moving, I don't want to miss a thing. When was the last time we were like that? God, I don't want to miss a thing. See, these disciples, they were like, we can't help but to speak about what we're seeing and about what we're hearing. Jesus commanded, this is not a, a, a suggestion, he says, go and make disciples. And a lot of, I, I even had some deacons in a church I pastored once, and they're like, well, that, Jesus was talking to the disciples. We're not disciples. Like, what Bible are you reading, sir? Well, we're not disciples. We're called to be disciples. Go and make disciples. So you're saying that they, uh, this is a generational thing. We're supposed to be making disciples. That's the mission. That's the mission. If a church isn't making disciples, then it isn't a church. It's not a church the moment it stops making disciples. And if we're sitting in a church service and you don't want to be a disciple, problem. Right? If you don't want to follow Jesus, that's a problem with you and him. I love you. You can stay just the way that you are, still going to love you. You're wrong. But here's the thing is, is this. I am here because I want to follow Jesus and I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be challenged to live for Jesus. I want to share Jesus. I want to walk for Jesus. I want to serve him. So everything that we do comes back to Jesus and his kingdom. All right, good. All right, so let me tell you this. 1.6 billion people in the U.S. do not know Jesus. This is just U.S. stats. 1.6 billion people. 1.6 billion. Every minute in the U.S., five and a half people die. Every minute. That means that today, Sunday, 7,963 people, roughly, will die today. Only 63% of the population in the U.S. claim to be Christians, so that means that 3,700 plus people will die without Christ today, going to hell. 3,700 people will die today 
on a one-way ticket to hell. 63% of the population in the U.S. says they're a Christian. If every person reached one person, the entire nation would be saved. You guys get that math, right? If every single Christian actually was a Christian and they reached one person, the entire nation would be saved. Everybody gripes about the nation. I'm not griping about the nation. I'm griping about Christians, complacent and not sharing their love for Jesus. That's what I'm going to complain about. Out of that 63% of the nation, only 27% of people who claim to be Christians actually regularly attend church. I think Billy Graham had it right. Billy Graham, as he did his crusades, he said he believed that 25% of, any, of, of the attendance in any given Sunday, 25% of people who showed up to church weren't actually saved. Thought they were, maybe believed they were, but that they weren't truly born again. One out of every four, you look around the room, one out of every four, Billy Graham would say, if he was standing here today, he says probably 25% of the church isn't saved. They, they, they maybe prayed a little thing when they were a kid, but they have not followed Jesus an ounce of their life. Guys, Leonard Ravenhill talked about the altar. And he says, man, the church needs to alter the altar. He says the altar is a place for, it's a bid for us to come and die. If you're not willing to pay the price, don't get up. I'm like, ooh, Leonard. I don't think they probably liked that. Probably could have been nicer about that. But think about it. Salvation is free, but it costs everything. Because salvation is, what is real salvation? God, I can't get to heaven on my own. I'm lost. I need a Savior. And God, here's my whole life. I'm surrendering my life to you. That's salvation. God, save me. And he goes, okay, then you can have it. My whole life is yours. That's what salvation is. And a lot of people say, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to follow the crowd. Chuck Lawless gives a couple of reasons why the church no longer evangelizes. He says, many church members do not believe that people are really lost. There's been a lot of surveys that they've done, done among the churches, and it has proven that the majority of church people who call themselves Christians believe that all good people go to heaven. They probably watched the, the, the movie, you know, All Dogs Go to Heaven. It's not true. Just because, you know, it was on a cartoon does not make it truth. It's not biblical truth. I can't tell you how many times we've knocked on doors and we would, I like to ask this one question. In your opinion, what does it take to get to heaven? And I've had most people who, I'm a churchgoer, great, then this question is going to be so easy for you. I like that. I'm like, I go to church, great, super easy question. What do you think it gets, takes to get to heaven? Your opinion. I just want to know your opinion. And almost every person who was claiming to be a Christian said, if you're good enough. And then every time I've done a funeral, and so here's the deal, as a pastor, and I grew up in this town, so my name is kind of known in the town, I can't tell you how many people say, would you come do this funeral? They don't go to church, but they're in heaven. All right, here's the problem. I, can, I have all these people tell me, well, you don't have to go to church to be saved. Absolutely, the church doesn't save anyone. Jesus does. But I can tell you this, that if I'm saved, there's no other place I want to be. There's no other place I want to be. 
in his house, worshiping his name, who died on a cross to save my sins. That's where I want to be. In fact, Romans 3.11 says this, there is no good one. He says there is none who is good. There is only one who is good, and that's Jesus. Every one of us has fallen short of the good. So if good people are going to heaven, if that's what you think, you're wrong. None of us. In fact, 58% of religious people do not even believe there is an actual hell. Almost 60% of the church does not believe in a literal hell. And the greatest percentage of those who do not believe in hell are 30 and under. Because their parents stopped taking them to church. And then preachers stopped preaching about hell and about heaven and about it all. Second reason, he says, many pastors do not evangelize beyond the pulpit. There's no missions teams. There's no ministries going out. So it's basically, this is the only opportunity. And I'm so glad that ain't the case here. Churches do not provide much evangelism training. If you would like some evangelism training, September 30th, put it on your calendar. We're getting ready to go out and do an all, um, throughout the community door knocking. Um, is going to be on that Saturday at 8 a.m. We're going to do training. So we can't use an excuse that, well, the church never does training. We do. You just got to show up. That's your part. Number four, uh, that we've made the church a place to retreat from the world rather than to be renewed to reach the world. Woo, come on, right? See, well, we should be challenged in this place. When you leave today's service, my hope and prayer is that you want to share about the love of your life, who's Jesus. That's what I hope that when you walk out, say, man, I... That waitress is getting prayed over today, you know? Hey, I can't wait to, to get to Walmart because when I'm getting cashed out, I'm going to say, I love you, God loves you, and I want to pray for your day. Man, I can't wait to start seeing what happens when we start sharing our love of Jesus with others. He says, uh, number six, he says, most church members have no relationships with non-believers. In fact, they're afraid of non-believers. Here's what happens is, is because Christians, believers, they stop being discipled. They stop going to Sunday school. They stop going to Wednesday nights. They stop going to, to opportunities to learn. They go to, stop going to small groups. And what they're doing is they're trying to cram everything they need to be a disciple in this one little hour that we have, right? And then they, then they run back out. And so they're like, well, man, I'm afraid about being around lost people because they might lead me astray. It should be the other way around. Man, I should be influencing them to come out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. That's how it should be. But we have so many Christians saying, man, I'm not strong enough in my faith to have a lost friend. Well, no wonder we're not reaching anybody. We're shutting ourselves away from everything. Seven, many believers just don't care. Churches become apathetic and complacent. That's why there's, I can guarantee you this, if a church is, re, is, is, is trying to reach lost people, it won't die. If we're on mission for the Lord, it won't die because it's his church, and he said he's building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. So if it's his church and we're on mission doing his mission, it will succeed. All right, so getting back to the passage. 
All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. He says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What, is plain, what, what, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. And if we're in the right mind, it's for you. Basically, they're like, Paul, you're crazy. And he's like, yeah, for Jesus. You know, if you're really going to be all sold out for Jesus, you're going to be called a freak. You're going to be called a radical. That was the greatest compliment I ever had. I remember something. You're just too radical, Pastor. I'm like, yes, yes, finally. Yes, yes. So... But I want to come back to that first part of this. He says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. I've heard so many pastors that have put so much emphasis that this isn't talking about fear. It's only talking about respect. And they got their Greek words backwards. I can't change the Greek. I can't change the original writing. And I can't change what the original intent was. It's the Greek word phobos. It's where we get the word today, phobia. I have an arachnophobia. That's spiders. Okay. Now, if I see it coming, it doesn't scare me. It's when I'm walking to my tree stand in the dark, and I'm between two trees. And I don't, wear, I don't like to wear headlamps because I don't want the deer to see me walking to my tree stand. So I go in the dark, and all of a sudden I hit, and I get a face full of cobweb, and then I feel the spider doing this, and then I'm just like, I'm going to die. You know? <laughs> Take me now, Lord. Phobos is an actual fear. Let me give you another illustration. Fear does not mean that I cower. But do you know that every time the prophets were in the presence of God, um, it, when Isaiah saw a vision, Isaiah chapter 6, we read part of that verse this morning already, and, and it said that when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he says, woe is me, I'm, un, he's, I'm a dead man, I saw the Lord. Every prophet who ever saw a glimpse of God thought they were going to die. Every one of them. There's none of them go, woo! No, it's like, oh, I'm dead. That was the first reaction of every prophet who saw God. Every one of them, I'm dead. Because God is holy and I know I'm not holy. Not like Him. So there is a motivation by fear. He says, Be, we know what it is to fear the Lord. So therefore, because I know what it is to really fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. That's pretty good. To fear the Lord. It, 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 it's a, like a relationship with a father and children. My children have a fear of me. If I say water the sheep and they don't water the sheep, the belt comes off and a hind end turns red real fast. Just ask my boys. They forgot a couple of times on purpose. They won't ever forget again. They are not afraid of me. They do have a fear that dad ain't playing. If he tells me to clean the house, he tells me to do the dishes, you can ask all of my girls. You lie, that'll be the worst spanking of your life. Just tell the truth. That's all. Tell the truth. You lie, you get it. That, one, that one's one that there's about three or four spankings when I was, I still, I'm 43 years old and still remember a couple, a couple of those spankings. The worst spanking I ever got was when I lied. Like, I'm never doing that again. I had a fear of my dad, but not a fear where when he walked in the room, I'm on the ground 
crawling under the couch. That's not that kind of fear. But I was afraid of what my dad could do. I knew who my dad was, and my dad expected something of me. Do we have that kind of fear of God? I mean, the Bible says, says, uh, talks about fear the Lord all the time. 114 times there's just fear the Lord. You look up in, in a concordance 114 times, 114 verses. Well, there's 125 verses that says fear God. So I'm guessing that this is a pretty big deal. That God says, hey, in fact, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But the fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9.10. Whoever fears the Lord walks uprightly. Why do they walk uprightly? Because they fear the Lord. Do you know why my kids behave? Because they fear their dad. Ask them. You see, I love this. Whoever fears the Lord walks uprightly. We know why. Because of the fear. It's because of the fear of God. I'm going to do what God tells me to do even when I don't like it. So because of the fear that I have for God, when he says forgive people who hurt me, I forgive them. I'd rather that pain, the consequences of that pain be here than me have to deal with him because, God, I'm not going to do what you told me to do. Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress and for their children it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Having a fear of the Lord is what we're commanded and told to do. We should have a fear of the Lord. In fact, what should that fear, one of those parts of that fear, the motivation by fear is a fear of judgment. The, the verse before we started today, which we ended last week with, is 2 Corinthians 5.10. That was the last verse we talked about last week. He says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to stand before God and give an answer for all of my actions. So when I said, God, no, I'm going to answer for no. I'm going to stand before God. There is going to be a judgment and there's too many churches saying, oh, don't worry about the judgment. Seriously? I'm worried about the judgment. Because it's going to happen. And it says that I will be held accountable for every careless word. Do you know how much I talk? Like all the time. There's a lot of talking that comes out of this mouth. It's always flapping. Ask anyone. Right? And there's been a lot of careless words that have slipped out. I'm going to have to answer for them. I'm going to have to answer for the times that I made compromises because I didn't want to hurt somebody's feelings. There's going to be times when I stand before God and He says, what were you thinking? I wasn't. Clearly. Ezekiel chapter 3, listen to this. I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel so that so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die in their sin, and you will be held accountable for their blood. Ooh. You guys got quiet on me. But if you do warn that wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness, 
They will die in their sin, but you will, be, you will have saved yourself. Guys, I didn't. I'll tell you, it's Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Three verses. Read it. And a lot of people will say, he's talking to a prophet. He is. But guess what? He still places the same message on our hearts. We are supposed to try to dissuade, just like what I read, the very first verse. And it says, for the fear that we know what it is to fear the Lord, so we try to persuade people. That's what we're trying to persuade. We're trying to persuade people. Don't go down that road. It's leading to hell. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. The way is narrow that leads to life and not many find it. Broad is the way to destruction and too many are entering it and we're standing by and saying it'll be okay. We need to be motivated by the fear of hell. Too many Christians don't believe in a literal hell. God is love. He is love, but he's also the judge. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Revelation 20, the death, of ha death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. But the cowardly, this is Revelation 21, the next chapter, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice uh, magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Woo! They will be consigned, that means they're to the lake of fire burning of sulfur. This is the second death. So here's the problem. If you do not believe in hell, then you have to erase a whole bunch of verses out of the Bible. You see, the, the point is, is this I'm wanting you to understand is that as a pastor, I have to preach the whole word of God. I don't get to pick and choose. There's a lot of churches that are picking and choosing and that's why they're dying. Because they're not really his church. If you're going to be a real church, you got you to preach the word of God as it is, not as I would have it. I would love to just like, hey, everybody's going home. It's not that way. It is there is a heaven, there is a hell, and there's a judgment to decide. So there is a motivation that is caused by fear, a fear of judgment and a fear of hell. But there's also being compelled by love. So I'm motivated by a fear, but I'm compelled by love. I love how God doesn't just say, hey, I just want you to walk around in fear. He says, I want you to have a healthy dose of fear in your life, but I want you to be moved by love. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the next verse in our line. For Christ's love compels us, right? It irresistibly urges me. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Are you convinced that Jesus died for everyone? Oh, that, that, I, I asked if you were convinced, not if you know. <laughs> are you convinced that Jesus died for everyone? Much better, much better. Okay, so you're convinced. And then, so he goes, and then therefore all died. Ooh, wait, hold on. Oh, I don't know if I like that part, right? He died for all that those... Right? He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So what he's saying is this. Are you truly convinced that Jesus died for you? Yep. Now you live for him. It's, it's, that, it's really that easy, guys. It's that simple. I, the moment that I believe and I'm convinced that Jesus died for me, now I live for him. 
So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ that way, we do so no longer. So here's the thing is, how many times have you been guilty of looking at somebody because of their really bad behavior and said, that's a lost cause? Anybody ever do that? Come on, don't lie in church, because we know all liars are going to hell. I'm just saying, don't lie. So most of us in this room have probably looked at somebody like, oh, there's no way that God can save them. We regard no one. In fact, God loves to save those who are unsavable. Right, Taylor? Tyler, right? Right? He loves taking the one that everybody else gave up on, right? The one sitting in jail, the one who messed up, the one who there's no way back. And God says, now I want that person. And then that person's going to share their faith with everyone. All the lost causes are the greatest evangelists. Everyone who somebody thought was a lost cause, when that person gets saved, they change the world. I wish a whole bunch of lost causes would get saved. In fact, when you think you found a lost cause, you go after them. Because they'll turn the world upside down. He says in verse 17, therefore, if, I love this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. I want you to give glory to God if you're in Christ today. Give glory to God. Come on. If you're, right? If you're in Christ. Because this is the promise. He says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. You were born again. You were new. You got a blank slate. Come on, right? You got a, a mulligan if you're a golfer, I'm not. So a redo, a ch -ch -ch deleted kind of moment, right? Select all, delete. Take that and put it in the trash can. You were a new creation. And he says the old has gone, the new is here. See, that's what he did for you. And that's what he wants to do for your neighbor. He wants to do that for your co-worker. He wants to do that for that lost cause family member that you've been griping about. You see what I'm saying? He wants to do that for everyone. He died for all. Not just for you and the people you like. He died for all. And he says, if they are in me... They're a new creation. They got to be born again. I wouldn't have liked the old Tyler. But I love this Tyler. This Tyler's awesome. The old Jared that I graduated high school with was a bitter pill. Whew. But this Jared, man, he loves the Lord. All this is from God. Whew. All of this. It's not from me. It's not from living water. This is from God. He says, so all this is from God who reconciled. It basically says he took a bad relationship and made it good. You know? Man, I, I love when I see that happen in marriages. A bad relationship made good again. That's reconciliation. That's what God wants from us. He wants reconciliation. But more than, that, than the marriage, he says what he really wants is us to be reconciled to God. He says all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then what? And what? Gave who? Us. Gave who? Us. Is that you? Yes. 
right? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only says, I'm going to save you, I'm turning your life around, now you go and you do that for somebody. Woo! What an honor. See, an ambassador says, wow, I'm sent on mission by God to reach a lost world that needs Jesus. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This isn't a verse for the pastors. This is a verse for the saved. All of us. You've been saved. It's for you. Now listen to this. Last, last verse. Last slide. Verse 20 and 21. We are therefore. So what he's saying is everything we talked about today. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. There is nothing neater than to think God chose me. The king of all kings chose me to be his ambassador. And that's what every one of you should be saying. If you've been saved, if he has, has, has saved you and forgiven you of your sins, you are automatically given the same message that was given to you. And what that message is, is that you now get to be his ambassador. Wow! You get to be the king's ambassador as though God were making his appeal through us. And the saddest part of this message is God is trying to make his appeal to your neighbor through you. But you're too afraid. God is trying to make his appeal through you to the person you're working with. But you're too busy thinking they're a lost cause. God is trying to make his appeal through you, but you don't want to be rejected. He's trying to make his appeal through you, and you're too worried about being their friend. <laughs> Jared was as lost as a goose in a snowstorm. <laughs> and we were best friends in high school. And I, I came back to Edwards and I was pastoring and he found out and I said, hey, let's go fishing. We got in a boat. Well, actually, we started off on the dock and he got mad and he walked away. <laughs> like, well, that didn't work. About three months later, hey, Jared, you want to go fishing? Okay. We got in a boat this time. I thought he might want to drown me, but I'm a pretty good swimmer. He would get so mad at me three times. But here's the thing. I love that guy. And I didn't want him to go to hell. I would rather him get mad at me here than to be down in hell for all of eternity saying, why didn't you care enough to say something? Why didn't you care enough to plead with me? Why didn't you care enough to push me and to challenge me and to say I'm headed to hell? Why didn't you do that? We have too many parents not sharing their faith with their kids. We've got kids headed to hell because their parents don't want them mad. Those kids aren't your friend. They're your kids. The saddest day that we're ever going to have 
is that when we have that day and we're in heaven and we're looking back and we're like, wow, look at all of those. And then all of a sudden, there's a moment that we realize that some of our best friends aren't there. And we're going to realize that some of our family members aren't there. There's nothing scarier than when we begin to assume someone's safe. Don't make an assumption when eternity is on the line. Because if hell is real, and it is, it was once said, an atheist told a, a Christian, he said, you know what, if I believed what you say you believe about hell and how bad that sounds, I would crawl across broken glass the four corners of the earth to warn my friends, you don't even cross the street. There was a... A season, uh, I got to see a mighty move of God. We were doing a church plant in Columbia, Missouri. And we had 15 straight weeks where people were getting saved. In those 15 weeks, we saw 115 people snatched from the gates of hell and put on a straight path headed to heaven. I remember something that we did every single week. We were so desperate that people would get saved, we prayed every single week, God, may one more, God, put one more person in our path. God, one more for your kingdom this week. And every time that happened, we would start saying the prayer all over again, God, give us one more for your kingdom. God, one more for your kingdom. Show me who that person is. God, I'm going to share my faith. I'm going to make it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever it takes. God, put me in somebody's path. When was the last time we woke up on a Monday right before you went to work and said, God, Put somebody in my path that I can share my faith with. What would happen if tomorrow morning you woke up and said, God, put someone in my path. What would happen if you left this room and you said, God, I'm going to Walmart. Put someone in my path. God, I'm headed to the restaurant. Put someone in my path. God, I want to represent you. God, I want to reconcile the world to you. I want them to know how much you love them. What would happen if a church caught that vision? Let's bow our heads. What would God have you do? You see, I, I believe that the altar is a place where we are, we have an opportunity to die to ourselves. That's what this is. This altar is an altar of sacrifice. God, I give you me. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice. That's what it is. God, have me. Who's going to go? Here. Here, Lord. Here I am. I'll go. I think some of us need to repent of the sin of omission. God, I've been saying no a long time. I've been resisting your presence. I've been resisting you when you tell me to go. And God, I haven't been going. I have friends that need Jesus. Maybe there's somebody right now that you know you're supposed to be witnessing to. Maybe you need to come up and pray for them right now. Maybe you need to pray that God would give you the strength and the courage Maybe that prayer starts off with, God, I'm sorry that I haven't been 
faithful. You saved me, but I've been so concerned about me and my kingdom that I've been no good to your kingdom. But that changes today. God, that changes today. I give you me. I won't be perfect, but God, I'm walking out of this place and I'm sharing you with whoever will hear me, whoever will listen. Pray that the whole church will surrender themselves to be an ambassador of Christ. That every one of you, whether you're at the altar or whether you're sitting in the seat, that today you would say, God, I want to represent you in the way I do business, in the way I live life, in the way that I talk to people. God, I want to be your representative. God, don't give up on me. Here I am. God, I'll try again. I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm yours. Send me. Here I am, God. Here I am. Send me. Lord, send us. We live in such a lost and broken world, God. We live, we're surrounded by lostness, God. We become callous to it. We become complacent, God. A building can't get complacent, but the members inside the building sure can, God. We have become complacent. We become apathetic and we don't care. Change our hearts today, God.